Hi, and welcome to Shadow Talk's weekly intelligence summary track, where our team of analysts dive into the top threat intelligence stories each week. To read their full findings and analysis, make sure to visit resources.digitalshadows.com. Now here's your host, Harrison Van Riper. What's up, everybody? It's HVR here. Welcome to another edition of Shadow Talk, your weekly threat intelligence podcast by Digital Shadows, produced by Digital Shadows analysts. Uh, it's a Thursday. We're, we're looking towards the Friday. Uh, sitting with me right now is Christian Rankin. Christian, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Thanks for having me, Harrison. I'm uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to a great weekend. I've got uh, dinner reservations at the uh, number one rated Italian restaurant in Dallas. Oh my gosh! Night. So, Which one is that? What is that? Uh, La Lucia, if you've ever La heard Lucia. of it. Yeah, I got reservations about two months ago. So oh wow, looking forward to that. Yeah, it's one of those. All right. Yeah. Well, that that better be delicious then. Are you gonna bring some back for me? I will. I'll bring it to next week's Shadow Talk. Okay. <laughs> Delicious. <laughs> All right, and then sitting to my right is Alex Giriku. Alex, Ali G, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty great. It's good to be back. Not as exciting as Christian's plans for tomorrow <laughs> night, but I'll probably do my usual and go to Chick-fil-A. <laughs> That's the usual? That's the usual Friday night? Friday night dinner? Yes. Yeah, with Zuko? Not with him, no. He doesn't get Chick-fil-A? No. What? You don't give any any. any they give Kim pretty. Kim? They give pretty good uh, snacks if you bring them in the car. They have like dog treats. Yeah. At the drive-up window. That's what I would expect. Yeah. Yeah. Like a puppuccino, like at Starbucks. It's just like a dog, like a milk bone or something. Oh. Oh. Okay. Well, that's right. That's still worth it. So obviously we're going to start off first with our uh, threat intelligence wrap-up of the week, uh, but then the second half of the show we're going to have a little interview with me and Dr. Richard Gold discussing the Too Much Information, the sequel paper uh, that Photon Research Team published uh, last week. So be sure to stay tuned for that. Um, all right, let's jump right into it. Who is taking the first article? I will be so uh, be so <laughs> bold and take the first article. Uh, so yeah, what we've got what we've got going on this week are a couple things, including a new malware variant uh, has been identified dubbed Hidden Wasp, and has been used to conduct uh, targeted attacks against Linux systems. Has a zero day detection rate among uh, major antivirus solutions. So Hidden Wasp consists of three components: uh, user mo- mode rootkit, a Trojan, and the initial deployment script, which checks certain variables on the compromised device creates a new user account and downloads and executes an archive file containing the rootkit and Trojan components. So attribution for Hidden Wasp is still unknown, but it has reportedly been developed using open source code from various publicly available malware variants, including the botnet Mirai and the rootkit Azazel. Uh, there are also reported infrastructure overlaps with some Chinese malware associated with the Winti threat umbrella. Uh, so what does this all mean? Uh, Linux devices are increasingly targeted with botnet uh, and malicious cryptocurrency mining malware, and it is less common to identify Trojans or backdoor variants like Hidden Wasp in the wild. It is pretty alarming uh, that it has successfully avoided detection to date, and therefore it is likely other attacks have occurred which have gone unreported. Hidden Wasp shares code and similar infrastructure with multiple malware variants, including other Linux rootkits, but using publicly available malware does make it more difficult to uh, to, uh, attribute Hidden Wasp to a particular threat actor. But there are some indicators. Uh, It originated from within China, 
the reporting did not confirm who had been targeted with hidden wasp to date, um, which would uh, obviously help with attribution efforts. However, we don't know that right now. Uh, it's highly likely the malware is intended for use against an already compromised device and therefore is likely uh, distributed as a secondary payload. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Uh, wasps are probably the most frightening insects uh, alive. Yeah, especially when they're hidden, right? Yeah, especially when they're hidden. Yeah, like I, they're like they're like spawns of Satan. I hate wasps. Oh wow, this is clearly yeah tapped a nerve here. Yeah, okay. you really have, you really oh. have. All oh. right, cool. Uh, hidden wasps, yes, definitely something to keep an eye on. All right, Alex, you're up next with some Turla activity. Fill me in. So the Russia-affiliated threat group Turla has recently been identified targeting a few diplomatic entities in, in Eastern Europe to exfiltrate some sensitive documents. What's interesting about this campaign is that they incorporated uh, PowerShell scripts to run malware in memory. So they've previously used similar PowerShell scripts before, but with limited success. So because they were running these scripts in memory, that gives them a couple of advantages and primarily allows them to, it allows them to bypass some detection mechanisms that are typically triggered when malicious programs are executed or dropped onto a system um, otherwise. So the previous campaigns that they used these in-memory loaders in were less successful. They had some bugs. They were unreliable. So because this now suggests that the group is actively working on these tactics, uh, we're likely to see similar campaigns in the future. And the targets in this campaign, although they weren't specifically identified, gen generally align with uh, typical Turl activity. Uh, the group has previously targeted organizations in Western Europe, Eastern Europe, South America, and the Middle East. So, so because it looks like Turla is actively developing these techniques, uh, we're likely to see similar campaigns in the future. So we're looking at through the next three to six months. All right, so quick detour for a shameless plug by me, um, you know, regarding the TMI research that we just published. I was on the Healthcare Information Security podcast uh, to kind of to talk about some of the healthcare-related research that we had uh, put into the paper. So please do go and check that out on iTunes or Overcast or wherever it is that you listen to your podcast. Um, all right, Christian, you are up next. Give me another one. Cool. Yeah, so uh, on top of the Hidden Wasp, which you hated so much, there's another <laughs> malware identified called Black Squid, oh. uh, distributing an XM rig Monero cryptocurrency miner. The malware uses brute force attacks and web server exploits to target vulnerable web servers, network drives, removable drives, and compromised websites. Um, after installation, Black Squid checks to ensure it is not being run in a sandbox environment and checks the breakpoint registers for hardware breakpoints, and if the conditions are met, Black Squid downloads and executes two XMRig cryptocurrency mining components. It also uses the NSA-developed Eternal Blue and Double Pulsar exploits, as well as a variety of uh, known CVEs to propagate laterally through the system. Uh, of the two XMRig cryptocurrency miner components deployed as the final payload, one acts as a traditional cryptocurrency miner, and the other component checks for NVIDIA and AMD video cards on the compromised systems, and if these are, cards are present, the, the second miner mines for GPU resources. So what does this all mean? Uh, researchers have discovered numerous flaws in Black Squid, uh, including erroneous code and purposefully skipped routines indicating that it could still be in development stage, and if this is the case, it is likely that the developers could exchange the cryptocurrency miner payload to fully maximize the malware's capabilities. Uh, this could include the ability to escalate and access privilege, 
exfiltrate sensitive information and act as a loader for secondary and tertiary payloads. So, thing to know about Black Squid is it is a sophisticated tool, however it relies on exploits and techniques available in the wild. This indicates it is highly likely still in development and further attacks are likely uh, in the midterm, so three to six months. Now, Black Squids, I'm not as concerned with. The wasps, yes. The squids, I'm, I'm alright. What if it was a giant squid? A giant squid, maybe, but it was just a black squid. It's not a, it's not like a giant a squid. baby squid? Yeah, a baby squid. That's fine. I mean, baby wasp, no. Baby squid, fine. Alright, Alex, you're up next. So we have some more Monero cryptocurrency miner action here. In this case, there were some unknown threat actors who were exploiting vulnerable Docker APIs to install it on victim machines. And what was interesting about this case is that they were using a custom cryptocurrency miner instead of one that's either off the shelf or one that's otherwise publicly available. And so while we don't really know why that was done, it's possible that it was done because uh, they wanted to avoid detection by security solutions because they'd probably be able to identify the more commonly used ones. So we've previously seen threat actors exploiting publicly exposed uh, Docker APIs to install malicious software such as cryptocurrency miners in the past. And it's possible that because people are beginning to adopt Docker more, uh, these kinds of campaigns are going to be more frequent in the future. That's going to do it for the Threat Intelligence Wrap-Up for this week. Be sure to stay tuned for the interview with me and Dr. Richard Gold uh, discussing the Too Much Information, the sequel paper, coming up next. All right, and joining me now is Dr. Richard Gold from our security engineering team. Rich, how are you doing today? Pretty good, thanks. How are you doing? Pretty good. So we're here to talk about our most recent uh, Photon Research Team report. Too much information in the sequel, which essentially, you know, gathers a whole lot of information from the public internet using a tool that we built internally. Overall, we detected about 2.3 billion files exposed across various online file stores. Um, Now, Rich, you were involved also in the report from last year, which this is obviously a sequel to that. Um, Do you think overall the kind of increase in exposure is surprising or is this something that we would kind of expect do you think like next year it's gonna get even higher what do do you think about all that yeah i think it's likely to increase Uh, i think we've seen from the data that we've gathered that there's just more and more devices coming online and also that the older devices don't seem to go away i think that was something that was quite surprising when we've looked at the sort of things that we've seen, I mean, we've seen people you know, sharing files which are like you know, 20 years old. They're bringing, people are bringing their backups online from, you know, which are taking in files from a very, very long time ago. So I think in general, we've seen the rate of new devices being added to be higher than devices falling away. And so whilst, you know, some people do take stuff offline, generally speaking, um, the older devices tend to linger. So the big exception to that is, of course, the S3 buckets, which is um, also shows like they're very, very, very different um, systems. So you have like FTP, SMB, RSync, these kind of things, which are you know, protocols and you know, servers implementing protocols which people are running themselves or organizations are running themselves. So it's very, very decentralized. So it's completely fragmented. Whereas S3 is a centralized, you know, controlled system controlled by, by Amazon. So when they decided to roll out additional security features, everybody gets them immediately all at the same time. 
So, of course, you know, everything's a trade-off, right? There's many pros and cons to centralized versus decentralized systems. But in this case, in this very specific case about limiting the exposure, the way that Amazon did it is extremely effective. The numbers are very clear on that. And, you know, we're still looking at NAS drives connected to the internet, which are, you know, 10, 15, even older, you know, 15 right. years yeah, I think I think the S3 data was pretty interesting because, you know, we kind of say in the paper, while overall, you know, the number of files increased, I think the exposure since that new uh, feature, which is the block public access feature, essentially since that came out, it, it does seem to show that a lot of that exposure has gone down. And so I think that I'm hoping, right, that hopefully, like, if we do this report next year or if we look at the data next year, that we'll still see that kind of decline in, uh, in that data being exposed. Yeah, I think that it just shows very, very clearly the power of secure defaults. If you have secure defaults, then you, know, you can make a huge amount of difference and eliminate you know, almost entire classes of security issues almost overnight. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, so yeah, so that's some of the S3 data. So why don't we go into, you know, I've gotten a lot of questions since we kind of published the report about the healthcare data that we, that we discovered. So uh, just to give listeners kind of a background, we found about 4.7 million medical-related files that were exposed on these online file stores, and about 4.4 million of those were DICOM medical imaging files. And so... Um, you know, this is the specifically with the DICOM files. That's 2.2 million that we found last year. So 4.4 million this year. It's a you know it doubles essentially. Um, do you think that the healthcare sector is doing enough? I guess to kind of combat this exposure, or like, what can we do to kind of reduce a lot of this stuff that is you know very sensitive healthcare information? It's complicated. It's very difficult. The, the issue, I think, is that a lot of places are uh, you know, not you know, massively well-funded mm -hmm. uh, and they don't really have the same sort of security programs you might see in other places. And then you have you know, a lot of um, you know, smaller organizations with sensitive information and maybe not really realizing how this information can get out and uh, how this information can you know, find its way online. I think that's, that's something which is really difficult with uh, healthcare, is it's very fragmented. Again, you know, just going back to that Amazon example where you had like one entity where they can just flip a switch and then that um, issue is solved across, across the board. Right. You simply don't have that with you know, small clinics with you know, maybe they're running a NAS drive, maybe an internal server, Maybe they have an admin, maybe the admin left, maybe they haven't changed. Mm -hmm. You know, as long as it's still running, nobody really knows. People don't really have insight. Maybe they don't have the same level of security um, scrutiny on their systems. And uh, yeah, that, that, that causes a problem. And as the information they hold is so sensitive, it's, it's uh, kind of in a, in, in a difficult situation where you have sensitive data, but not necessarily the means to protect it. Um, whilst you have things like HIPAA, which control in medical data, I don't know if it has the same, you know, you don't have the same kind of like PCI, DSS standard, which you would have for handling payment card information, you know, 
that's very, very specific, right? You have a piece of payment card, you know, it looks like this, it has a bin number or a CVE, you can't store that. And, you know, it's, it's very limited and specific. Whereas healthcare data, well, what is that? You know, you've got in this case the, the images which are created from medical imaging equipment. You have patient records, but then there's this whole sort of whole ocean of ancillary information, um, which can be construed as being sensitive. You know, emails about a person's treatment, for example, in some cases could be extremely sensitive. Yeah. Um, and you know, so there's, I think it's, it's a lot more challenging than, for example, that very specific example of, of payment card information, because the information types are so diverse. Yeah. Yeah. I think also something that comes into it is kind of the, a lot of the, obviously the medical systems and the medical devices and things like this, they're very proprietary, right? They're very only focused on healthcare specific related things. So even when you have things like DICOM images, which traditionally are stored on like PAX servers, which is just like picturing archive servers, um, that's very specific to healthcare only. And like you say, with, with people who may not be, um, you know, may not be in an organization for a long time, they may have just set it up and then they leave and then it just kind of is floating around there for a while. Um, I think that that also gets into kind of why a lot of this exposure happens and um, is, you know, obviously continuing to grow uh, over time. Right. And I, you know, like a, a personal anecdote, I mean, you know, was the plural of anecdote is not data, but I, I ran into a guy once and you know, he was you know, working at a hospital and he was also the IT guy as well as like doing all these other tasks as, you know, <laughs> he happened to be like the most tech savvy person around. So sort of he became the de facto IT guy, but they didn't have the budget to hire you know, a full-time IT guy. And, you know, you, you, if people aren't dedicated to this task, yeah, mistakes can happen. Um, all right. So moving on from the healthcare stuff, let's go into a topic that you are very well familiar with, uh, Sam Sam. So my old friends, <laughs> your old friend, Sam Sam. So you, you kind of dug into Sam Sam pretty deeply when you produced a, uh, kind of like a miter attack playbook for, for their infection scheme or intrusion right. scheme, I should say. Um, while we were doing this research, we came across uh, kind of, you know, non-publicly reported, uh, infections of SamSam, uh, and while you know, you know, for for those in the know for threat intel or you know just infosec in general, um, you know, in November of 2018, the U.S. DOJ uh, indicted two of the you know alleged SamSam operators. Uh, that's not to say that you know they they haven't been arrested by any means, but um, you know, it's not to say that that stuff couldn't continue. But this did happen, you know, prior to that in 2017. Um, so yeah, so I thought that that was pretty interesting. Fine, what do you think about it? Yeah, I really liked it. Um, I, I wasn't, you know, full disclosure, I wasn't the one who found that. So I was really, really happy to see how that just popped up as yeah. a sort of consequence of the um, system that we built. And yeah, it just goes to show that those guys were really prolific. That kind of approach was, uh, they had a lot of success with it. And then probably other people will pick up that mantle of um, that style of operations. But yeah, very interesting find. Yeah, I think especially now that, um, you know, in the news lately, specifically, is like this Baltimore ransomware infection and, you know, a bunch of different kind of smaller local governments have been infected with ransomware. And I think that's it's becoming more and more prevalent, even though, you know, not, not to say that we ever had a handle on Sam Sam to begin with, but 
um, you know, it's seemingly growing. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, people, you know, the, the criminal organizations will go with what works and they'll see that this is one way to monetize access. Because that's yeah. always been the sort of the tricky part in some senses. Like, okay, so you can, you know, with your lead skills, you can break into some organization, but then what, what next? Like, and so there's, you know, there's been ransomware campaigns which are just, you know, fairly spray and pray, pretty, uh, pretty untargeted. And now they're realizing that, you know, with well-known public exploits for, you know, patch vulnerabilities and, you know, credential reuse and standard lateral movement techniques from, you know, pen test tools, red team tools, that they can get to a point where they can take over a network without too much trouble and then yeah, deploy ransomware everywhere. So you take out the entire organization rather than just trying to hope for the best. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely works. And then the, the criminal groups gravitate to that. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay. So I think the final topic that I want to ask you about that I actually didn't ask you, I didn't ask you ahead of time, so it might catch you off guard, but, uh, SMB. So obviously SMB is the biggest kind of exposure point that we found. Um, why do you think that is? I realize that SMB has been around for a long time. Um, it's widely used kind of in a lot of different systems, but why do you, why do you think that SMB is such a large exposure point for so many different files? Yeah. I mean, you, you kind of put your finger on it. It's built into so many things. So if you look at, you know, obviously windows, it's right there. Macs can speak SMB, Linux can speak SMB. There's an open source server implementation called Samba. Um, there's obviously the, the built-in Windows server implementation. So it's, it's used in a lot of places. So as opposed to something like FTP or rsync, which are typically used on the back end in you know, server side, and you know, of course people can use you know, command line clients, even some GUI clients to access them. It's typically more something that you know, sysadmins use to like, shuffle files around. And you know, back in the day, we used to use to download like, Linux distributions and that kind of stuff. But it tends to be more on that side of things, more the infrastructure side of things, or behind the scenes. Whereas SMB is used very much by regular users, day-to-day -day basis, using you know file sharing, print sharing, printer sharing. So um, it's something which I think has just a very, very wide usage. And then also, as I say, is is built into many systems, and you not only the endpoints. Windows, Mac, and Linux, but also you know appliances like NAS drives, you know that kind of stuff. So it's just in a lot of different places. I think that's why we're seeing it just everywhere. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, all right. So then I'll ask you one more question. If you could recommend, so say say somebody read this paper. If you could recommend one overall security thing, security mitigation advice, tip, whatever, what would it be? Put a password on it as the yeah. song goes. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that too. Uh, you know, it's it's very simple in that sense. Like our technology doesn't do anything which um, abuses any authentication system at all. So, you know, a password, and please make it a strong, unique password if you can, um, is by far the best approach. Now, of course, you could do a lot more, right? There's um, 
you could switch from using FTP to using SFTP with you know uh, keys rather than passwords. You can firewall it off from the internet. You can put it behind a VPN. And there's lots of different things, you know, IP access control lists, all this kind of stuff. But the very first thing is just put a password on it. Yeah, yeah. Could not agree more. All right. Well, I think that will do it for us. Uh, listeners, if you want to go download the full paper, go to resources.digitalshadows.com and just search for Too Much Information, the sequel, and it should be right there. Uh, Rich, thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. All right, and we're back with the question of the week. Uh, before we get to that, please go download the full intelligence summary at resources.digitalshadows.com. Go follow Digital Shadows on Twitter at Digital Shadows. Go follow Photon at Photon underscore research. Um, go follow me. Don't follow Alex or Christian. Just me at PseudoHVR. Um, all right, so on to the question of the week. As listeners know, we have a question of the week every week. The question this week is, if you could go back to any point in time, what would it be and why? So because this uh, hypothetical question doesn't have any weird specifics attached to it, I'll just go under the assumption that I can just go anywhere and just observe what's going on. So I'd like to go back to the Big Bang and observe what actually happened because... What if the Big Bang didn't actually happen? Well, I'd like to go back to however many billions and trillions of years ago and see how the universe was formed. All right. Um, what would mine be? I think mine, I know that we say go back in time. I'm going to say go forward in time, though. I'm going to switch it up. I'm going to go negative back in time. So that's how that works, right? So now I can go forward in time. To your wedding day. I want to go, whoa, my wedding day? Yeah. I mean, okay, Sure. So I would go into the future, uh, pro- <clears throat> I'm going to say probably like mm, like 100 years from now, to see like where everything's at, see if anything's changed. Maybe we'll finally have flying cars at that point. Maybe Tesla has evolved from the ground and is now just flying around everywhere. Okay, well, I'm going to stick to the original guidelines here. Um, and this is uh, definitely a product of my recent obsession that some of our uh, viewers will understand because my answer right now, having understanding that physics doesn't have anything to do with this, thanks to Alex's answer already, I, I think I would be in uh, control room number four of the Chernobyl um, nuclear power plant and just see uh, what happened. And I think it'd be interesting to actually watch the explosion happen um, as well as... In slow motion. In sl- uh, yeah, I can... I Wouldn't can, that mean that you would die then? What? Oh, and viewing the Big Bang? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, true. All right, one of the more ridiculous questions that we've had lately, but uh, that's pretty good, pretty good. All right, thank you, guests. Thank you, listeners. Uh, thank you, future Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos fighting it out in their flying cars. Uh, talk to you all next week. <laughs> <laughs>